Hello everybody and welcome back to this our special podcast series brought to you by XY and the FPA coming to you from the Financial Planning Association Conference in Sydney. Uh, I'm joined again this morning by Danny. Good morning, Danny. Good morning, Fraser. We are day two. We are halfway through an amazing sharing of ideas at the FPA's 30th birthday. Yeah, fantastic. And we've got our first podcast victim at the podcast bar. <laughs> Thanks for kicking things off, Paul. My pleasure. Great to be here. So, Paul, you spoke yesterday. Yep. So, it would be, we've just learned in the small amount of time that we've spoken with you before the podcast that you're a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> you like to do a lot of things. Mm. Would you, before we get into your session and what that covered, would you mind telling the listeners a bit about you? You know, how you built an advice business and obviously a technology business as well. Yeah. And got in a thesis in there as well. There were three big things that we're going to cover in this podcast. Yeah. Um, look, I guess um, if, I, if I go right back to not the very start, but a long way back, uh, in a previous life, I was, I was an ambulance paramedic for about a decade um, in the 80s, 90s. And, and um, the thing I realized, I, I worked as a country ambo for, for a few years and... and uh, I keep hearing this phrase all the way th- through my, my career, which, which was whenever you arrived at, no matter what you arrived at, people would say, oh, okay, the ambulance is here now. Didn't matter what was happening, how terrible, what amount of you know, crap was going on, <laughs> the ambulance is here now, it's okay, right? And, and I took from that that, that what they were saying is, uh, I don't know what to do, I'm in chaos, right? And so someone here knows what to do. They've got the uniform on, they know what to do. This idea of chaos to calm became sort of a mantra for our practice that we started. It's our, it's our practice motto. Um, so when cl- clients come and see financial advisors, I think they come in in a chaotic situation, panicking, worried, upset, don't know what they're going to do, fearful. And so our job is to know what to do. And I think that's the job of financial planners to know what to do, right? So we've m- made that motto. Um, so it's around kind of... Um, Does that mean we can call financial planners first responders now? Is that, I think, is that absolutely. Is this official? You've, absolutely. You've, you've tagged it? Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> the first, first responder, first podcaster. So, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And you started that 25 years ago, is that yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. I think the job's very similar. Um, I think we, there are, there's a process we go through. Right? All financial planners should go through a similar process, maybe in different, different ways, but there's a process that they go through. Getting to know the client first, understanding that, and then working out what strategy they should be doing, we'll get what the gaps are, and then following a format, a process, a approach, um, just like Ambos do. And so, so consequently, that led me much later <laughs> into the idea of um, getting the client information much more accurately, much more efficiently, so we've got somewhere to go. So hence, we started the software business called iFactMind about four, four and a half years ago. Yeah, you decided to start uh, while you were doing a whole lot of other things at the same time. Now, you're in the middle of a thesis. Yeah. Uh, tell us about, uh, about how, how you love the hectic life. <laughs> oh, look, I, lo- I love education. So I've got a couple of master's degrees and a couple of degrees, and um, you know, I just really want to take that last step and, and get a thesis. So I, I did a, a master's in tax and master's in financial planning at Uni of New South Wales, um, in about 2009, 2011, um, finished that. There's a fairly big group there into behavioural finance, and so I sort of got interested in it. And uh, I took myself off to a conference in in Chicago. There's a Academy of Behavioural Finance conference, and kind of I was never, I didn't know a soul there, but, uh, but but everyone crowded around me, and I didn't know what the hell, I don't know <laughs> what's going on here. But uh, it was my accent, and, and uh, not the Aussie accent, but they wanted to know at that stage what it was like to live in a country where. People still thought property prices couldn't fall. Um, so post post GFC, when around the world house prices fallen fifty percent, ours had to dip for a week and then rebounded up. Um, and it got me thinking a lot about about that. And so I wanted to look at that in more detail. And hence, I kind of applied and got accepted to start a thesis um, for a doctorate. So yeah, a fascinating topic. Um, 
tell us a little bit about that process. How did you go through your thesis? At thesis as in how did you set what? What did you decide on would, would be the you were going to study? Yeah, uh, and tell us about the the outcome. Yeah, so what, what that was really about was was a belief I had, or a belief, which is a real important word in the thesis, but uh, a sense that um, people were, were at, the, at the time it got worse, but people were paying, spending so much of their resource, financial resource, on property, on residential real estate, mm. spending so much money on it. They were saying things to me like, I can't afford insurance. What do you mean? I've got a big mortgage. I can't afford extra super, super payments because mm. I've got a big mortgage. And sort of, why? Why are they having? Why are they putting all of their resources into this one asset that they live in? You know that that, uh, and then and then bidding prices up. So going to auctions and actively bidding against other people doing the same thing. So no sense of this house is worth eight hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars. If someone wants to pay one point two, good on them. It became I'm going to pay one point three, or else I have to pay one point four next week. So this this sort of idea of prices only ever go up. I've got to get in now. Um, so what was causing that? And they certainly uh, wouldn't do that with an insurance policy or premium, would they? No. It's worth eight hundred dollars. I'll pay no. twelve hundred for it. Up. It's better yeah. up. Can I have it? Yeah, they're doing it with a car now. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, they are. But 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 they normally wouldn't do it. You yeah. normally would. You go and bargain crazy, for things, right? It? You go and say, you know, like, I'm going to buy this. I'm, I'll give you a let. You know, they bargain with it. But with a house, it was like I'll pay whatever I've got to pay. Yeah. Mm. And so I wanted to know what what was that about. And um, so over a period of, of, of a couple of years, I did a doctorate in uh, a professional doctorate, so Doctor of Business Administration. It's a, still a thesis and still, a, but it's a, a professional doctorate, which is a lot more um, practically orientated. A PhD is a, is a really a real theoretical approach. A real, uh, so as whereas a professional doctorate is a more uh, applied approach to, to research. So I wanted to look at uh, so what I sort of started to stumble across. I started from going through the whole behavioural finance elements of yep. stuff and becoming really. I think I think pretty expert in behavioural finance from reading about 500 papers. Um, that the idea of beliefs, what, what are the beliefs behind this, and um, and and the influence became significant around the beliefs around past performance. So so um, so I, I set up a survey, and, and the study was involving a survey of really framing um, people's investment preferences by both both past performance and then by future expected return, and seeing there was differences, and there were very big differences between the two. So. So if you ask someone straight up, you know, what, what you prefer, how I did it was studying three options. I studied yep. the first option was residential real estate, second was Australian shares, and the third was superannuation. Now, superannuation, I know, is not an asset class. It's a tax structure. But in the general public's mind, superannuation is a thing. Mm. So it, it, is, it is the same as residential real estate and Australian shares in the public's mind. They don't see that as a tax structure. They see it as an investment thing. So, um, so the survey asked questions around that: what's your preferred investment of the three, um, and then, and what do you think had done best over the previous three and the previous ten years, and seeing a relationship between between those those sort of uh, factors. Mm. And there was a pretty strong fact relation between those those things. Um, but people had had uh, most people thought residential real estate had done best. In fact, we we, we polled the, the, the audience yesterday. Mm. And they said the same thing. They thought residential real estate had done the best. In fact, residential what real estate... What sort of swing of, I mean, the audience here, but what sort of, in your research, what uh, was around, the... Around 45% thought real estate had done best. Okay. Okay. And and, and uh, Australian shares worse than superannuation second. And in fact, the actual results were, were reversed. So I did re- research what was the best performing asset class over the 10-year period that I did the study and to now, and residential real estate was the worst performing uh, because people ignore the fact that it's geared at 80%. So what they see is I've put my, you know, I bought a house worth eight hundred thousand dollars, become one point two, it's grown by four hundred thousand dollars, and my money's gone. But that's only a, a three or four percent return over a five or six year period. You know, whereas the share market had done seven or eight or nine percent return over that period, the super had done six or seven percent over that return. 
So there was a pretty clear relationship between um, belief around past performance, even though it was wrong. So 60% of people got it wrong, but the influence for residential real estate was if you believed that they'd done best, you were six times more likely to want to invest in real estate than anything else. So really heavy influence. So then I, in the survey, I then asked them to um, predict what the returns would be in the next 10 years. So with, I gave, gave them a list, of, a list of outcomes. So let's say, for example, I would ask a question like, say you inherited $180,000, but the proviso was you had to invest in a superannuation fund of your choice. Okay? What do you think it would grow to in 10 years' time? And I gave them seven options of, of little ranges, you know, like 170 to 210. Or, and each of those ranges, the midpoint equated to zero, two, four, six, eight, ten, 4, 6, 8, 10, or 12%. Compound returns, okay, and then got them to predict, and then asked them, okay, after having done that, um, now what's your preferred investment? And materially changed. So the people who preferred investment halved. Okay, uh, the people who, who preferred superannuation or, or shares increased by about twenty five percent each. So it became apparent to me that that framing um, framing uh, mm. investment choice based on past performance versus expected future return was very significantly different. Did, uh, when I think about this from the you know, uneducated point of view, but I'm thinking about it from, from points of view of conversations that I've had in the past, um, it's, it's, those beliefs tends to, tend to be there for a very long time. They're cultural beliefs or beliefs of parents growing up and from an early age. And, and how, how is it that people can change those beliefs by just a, a bit of logical evidence versus that emotional connection that they've got to it? I'm sure they don't change the belief. If I really ask them, they'd probably still say uh, property doubles every seven years, right? That's, that's the heuristic people people go by. Therefore, I can't, I can't, you know, I can't lose on property. The people will say this all the time. But, but the, the reality is that when you're faced with a number on a page, and especially if you've pushed the buttons on the calculator, which like I sort of said yesterday, if you get the, get the clients to push the buttons on the calculator, don't you do it. You, you get them to push the buttons, and they see the outcome and they see what return that really means, um, then they suddenly realise that doesn't sound right to me. Mm. So it's, it, there's a really material difference between the two. Mm. So, yep. yeah, it, I'd be really – your research probably didn't um, flex into this, but perhaps you have an opinion, Paul, is there's beliefs are one thing, but is, is property preferred, do you think, because I – I have, I can. Sh- there's that element of identity with property. I own all of these properties, and and they're you know things that I can talk around. Whereas, perhaps that ha- there isn't that um, there there's isn't status, that ownership. Your status. status. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I'm looking for yeah. early in the morning. Yeah. Is, is there's a status element of having yeah. a number of properties? Whereas if you just have a share portfolio, like it doesn't seem as um, yeah. Yeah, so what you're really saying is boasting about it. Correct. Right? Well, so yeah, I'm important because I've got four properties yeah. versus a big yeah. share portfolio. So this is something else we, we looked at um, is um, kind of the, the impact. Um, how am I going to say this? So one of the things we talked about yesterday was prospect theory. So the, one, of the, one of the key behavioral finance theories, one of the, in fact, the, the, one, it's not the key, but it's the most popular, the most commonly known, you know, Tversky and Kahneman's prospect theory. But... One of the side effects, prospect theory basically says people feel losses significantly more than they enjoy gains in, in an emotional scale, right? Uh, it's often talked about twice as much, but there's no, there's no evidence it's a scale of twice to one, mm. but there's more. But there's a, a kind of less commonly known side bit of prospect theory, which kind of gets ignored, and that is when people are facing almost certain losses, they become risk-seeking, 
right? So, mm. so when people are facing almost certain losses, they start look. They don't know they are, but they become risk seekers. Hence and this, the reason the casino makes money from yeah. gamblers. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is exactly like I've lost a hundred bucks at the pokies. I better keep playing to win to win that money back, right? So I'm I'm looking for more and more risk all the time. Now, I think um, I became interested in relative loss, okay, not just actual loss, and. Relative loss is exactly what you're talking about. If I've got friends who've got three investment properties and I haven't, I feel like I've lost compared to them, right? And I better do that, mm. yeah? So the boasting about I've got three investment properties, aren't I great, has an impact on all the friends who haven't got three investment properties. Mm. It makes them want to feel like I'm going to take more risk now. I'm going to do something else to take yeah. more risk. And, and so, so, you know, I talk about you know young non-homeowners are highly at risk of, of of, uh, of prospect theory in that sense because I've got to pay whatever it takes to get into the market. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter. I've got mum and dad give me some more money. I need you know I'll lie to the bank. I want to borrow more money. I'm going to gear myself as much as I possibly can because I, I'm because I'm risk seeking mm. without any, any sense. When we see people now who who, who in, in their fifties have debt that they will never repay in their lifetime, um, more and more people are absolutely relying on inheritances to get out of debt. Uh, so you know, I, so I feel like people in property are more likely to ignore the downside, mm. as in they would go, "Oh, the market's going up, my house is now worth that." But when there's a downside, they just ignore yep. it because they'll know they feel like it will come back. Um, whereas, I guess, with market prices being yep. so prominent, this is the exact value of your super fund as yep. of today. Yeah, um, it's a bit more in their face. Yeah, look, you can't tell on the podcast, but I'm old, um, and I was around in 1989 when house prices fell around 25 percent. Um, we had a big recession that we had to have at the time, and but literally house prices fell under twenty five percent. Now the only people who noticed that were people who had to sell. If I didn't sell, what, what, house prices didn't fall. Yeah, they did. Mm. <laughs> they fell about twenty five percent, but no one experienced that unless they had to sell. Nobody and, felt the pain. The ones who had to sell because they'd lost their jobs and, and couldn't pay the mortgages, when did trades hit eighteen percent? They really felt the pain. Mm. They lost everything at that stage, and, and and there's people around who still experience that. But but if I didn't have to, and sell, then I didn't really notice it. Yeah. And so, you know, and at the moment, we've had this period of, of really, really ultra-low interest rates, emergency low, you know, never be foreseen low interest rates, but it becomes normalised really quickly. And so, we've got interest rates where, at the moment, which still aren't normal, you know. So, yeah. a 5% mortgage rate is still very low, but people are panicking about a 5% interest rate. Yes. Right? So, you know, yes. it's, it's, well, I think there's a little bit of media in that too with regards yeah. to the, they're just focusing on the increase. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for coming on today's, with today's conversation. If someone wanted to continue that conversation with you and, and, and have a look at that research that yeah. you've done what's probably the best way that they could reach out to you uh, they can probably email me if they want to um, we'll, certainly if they're at the Congress listen to the podcast uh, we're at the stand at the iFactMind stand but uh, otherwise they can look at looking up Paul, Paul, Paul at the is the easiest place to, to catch me so wonderful yeah. thank, thank you very much Paul thanks great. for chatting Paul my pleasure great thank you mm-hmm.